This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. Uh, I'm sitting in an unusual brewing space, one of the more unusual ones that I've been to uh, at Narrow Gauge Brewing here with Jeff Hardesty. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, this is a tight, tight little basement <laughs> brewery space um, and, and uh, you know, with lowish ceilings uh, and kind of tucked away here in Florissant, Missouri. Um, you've got quite an interesting setup. We're uh, kind of uh, uh, recovering from yesterday's perennial Midwestern uh, uh, Belgian beer fest, uh, but, but holding on strong, feeling good this morning. Uh, Definitely. Definitely. Definitely did some uh, some behaving. Right, we're going to talk to Jeff about uh, about some brewing and how he uh, brews his beer. But uh, first, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, GND Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. For 25 years, GND has led the way with innovative solutions for the craft brewing industry. Contact GND Chillers today at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Mention Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast, and you'll receive up to $1,000 worth of glycol with the purchase of any new G&D chiller unit. And turn your fridge into the best beer bar around with the Tavor app. Get access to -to hard-to-find, 100% independent craft beer from 47 states. Only buy the beers you want and skip the ones you don't. Ship any amount of your hand-picked beer to your doorstep for one flat fee. Yep, any amount. Uh, Download the free Tavor app today and get $10 in beer money with code BREWING. So Jeff, uh, you can we can hear uh, some fermentation bubbling in the background. It sounds so nice as and so soothing as, as a brewery. Um, but this uh, this is a crazy little setup here. Um, kind of walk me through your uh, brewing history, how you got into this, uh, how you decided to start a business around it, and then how you ended up in the basement of uh, of Cajinos uh, sure. here out in Florissant in this uh, this uh, <laughs> compact uh, small footprint brewery. Definitely. Um, so it's not uh, exactly what we initially sought out for with our original business plan when uh, my wife and I were putting together um, basically what we wanted to do with our lives or hopefully the rest of our lives if everything panned yeah, out right. Yeah. Um, so we actually originally wanted to very much focus on like a farmhouse style brewery. Sure. Obviously, that's not anywhere remotely <laughs> close to what we did. Um, so... Uh, we quickly learned, uh, like pushing forward with um, our business plan uh, as just us two, it wasn't really ever going to be a feasible option. Uh, yeah, getting a loan from a bank from somebody that's never had a day of professional brewing experience <laughs> um, is not something usually people right. are willing to throw money at. So um, we kind of paired up with Cajinos here in Florissant. Um, ben and Dave, which are owners of uh, yeah. Cajinos, are two of our business partners as well. So. Uh, they had this banquet space in the basement that they suggested to me. Uh, and as soon as I heard basement, I'm like, eh, I don't know. Because um, I was expecting even shorter ceilings than we have. Not that they're yeah. tall by any means. But um, we, we managed to fit quite a bit of stuff in our, our small space down here. Um, so it's it's kind of been a crazy start. Uh, things took off a lot quicker than we expected they would. And uh, luckily, we've been able to grow and fill this space and uh, at capacity in this current location. So. 
Yeah, talk to me a little bit about that. I mean, obviously, St. Louis has a very long brewing tradition, uh, and there are some, you know, even some fantastic craft brewers uh, in St. Louis that have been uh, going at it for a long time, even, you know, sh- from Schlafly to, uh, of course, you know, Perennial and Side Project on the. You know, so it's a it's a developed beer market. There are um, you know there's solid uh, you know kind of players in the market. How did uh, as you were thinking about uh, the beer that you wanted to make, uh, you know, come about uh, creating a, a niche for uh, for your brewery? Yeah, that's something uh, like pushing forward uh, with with our business ideas. What we were gonna do um, the the hazy IPA was not a thing in St. Louis at all. Right, so. Right. Um, it was a beer style that I had learned through trading, traveling. Um, it was just something I couldn't get here. And as a home brewer, uh, instead of trading away all the beers I was standing in line waiting for, then sure. for IPAs, it was what can I do to make something at home uh, similar. And that was not an easy, easy task by any means. So um, it was probably about a year and a half of development to yeah. get my IPAs where they were. Um, and they've even developed more since the brewery's been open. So, yeah. um, I would say our first year was more refining some of our recipes. Um, I was happy with them at the start, but, uh, I think they definitely improved over time. Yeah. Talk to me about that. I mean, um, you know, as you're tasting other people's beers and you're, you know, you're inspired by these things, um, you know, what does that process look like about translating, you know, that, that inspiration into, um, you know, beers that are going to taste like something that you brew and and that, you know, the way that you want them to taste? Sure. Um, lots of research. So, um, especially whenever I was trying to develop, um, my new England style or hazy, uh, IPAs, it was not a very broad, known thing so there was a a lot of questions out there what's creating this haze is it a grain bill is it the yeast is it the hopping rate and what is it so um i got really hung up on hop timing for way too long Um, (laughs) okay that's honestly like what in what way um so like just different additions in the kettle different additions in the whirlpool different uh, dry hopping timing, things like that. Right, so right. like that ate a ton of time, uh, in development. And I kind of felt like I was at a standstill. I wasn't ever getting to the point I wanted to be. Um, so I started digging a little deeper. What else can I try? Um, so I started messing around with water chemistry. Um, and that was some of the things I was starting to read. More of that information was coming out. Yeah. Uh, JC from Trillium was pretty open on Beer Advocates Forum. Right. Um, so I was able to like kind of see some of what they're doing, get an idea of what's going on. And it kind of helped push me a little bit more in the direction of where we are today. Um, but it was also a lot of, I'm going to try this. Because uh, yeah. I want our beers to be different. I don't want to make a beer that's exactly the same as somebody else's. Yeah. Um, it's a matter of like putting our own twist onto uh, what we do. Sure. No. And I mean, you know, inevitably, you know, character is going to develop because every brew house is different. And Definitely. even if even if everyone's using the same ingredients, in some way, you know, there's different hop lots, and you know, I mean, an infinite amount of different things yeah. that can happen there. Um, but it's interesting. I like that idea that you got hung up thinking that it was uh, hops timing and uh, yeah. you know how you add them, and then instead really found that it was a water chemistry uh, you know piece that helped pull those together. Um, what is it about that that water uh, profile that uh, you know that, uh, that you ended up with that uh, you know helps these beers uh, you know taste the sure. way it taste? <clears throat> um, yeah, it's um, it, it just kind of like changed the perceived. Um, 
I guess, aspects of what the hops were bringing to the beer. So, okay. uh, and both like bitterness when you're tasting, as well as the the flavor and aroma were slightly different. Yeah. Um, so, St. Louis has pretty high sulfate water. So, okay. um, that's stereotypically was really good for IPAs for a long time. Right. People wanted to boost sulfates, um, and that's still very popular in like West Coast style IPAs. Sure, but it's sure. very much the opposite uh, in most of the right. New England styles. So. Um, boosting up those chlorides um, definitely made the aroma and flavor of our beers uh, pop yeah. out a little, little more. Are there specific uh, you know salts that you're using then chlorides that uh, you find uh, deliver uh, in better character than others? Um, so I've not really uh, messed around with too many different sources of okay. um, chlorides. So we we use calcium chloride, okay, um, which also has some benefits for yeast with the calcium, right? Um, so it's uh, something we started with, and we actually used to add a little bit of uh, gypsum, so um, calcium sulfate, uh, and that would, in the very beginning, it wasn't a very large portion of what we were um, adjusting in our water, yeah. but uh, it's something we ultimately took out um, over time, where I just didn't think it was adding anything to yeah. the beer, and we did some trials side by side with and without it um and there wasn't a ton of difference so we kind of made the decision to cut it out of our right our process is there a ideal ratio or does that change uh beer to beer um so like truthfully a lot of our light beers we treat the water exactly the same so okay. even like our lagers we treat the same as our new oh, england ipas really? which is a little weird okay um so <clears throat> we we typically try and shoot for about a one-to-one -one ratio a little bit higher on the chloride side okay um, so it depends on our source water in um, we get basic reports of what it is this is the range right. um, so we're probably anywhere between one-to-one -to, -one to one and a half to one okay. uh, higher on the chloride how often do you get those reports um so it's as often as the water company okay. provides them it's something i should probably do a little more of <laughs> and actually send it into labs and make right, sure they're right. giving me correct information Sure. Uh, but so far, water has been pretty good to us here, but yeah. that's not really an excuse not to check on it. But of course, of course, it's a matter of uh, just doing it. Well, uh, so you even do that with your loggers, though, huh? Yeah, which is real strange. So um, and kind of my mindset in that is um, so especially like a Czech style Pilsner, which is supposed to be like the cleanest water possible. Right. Um, trying to balance the chlorides, the sulfate to kind of trick your brain into perceiving it as a softer water profile is yeah. kind of where my mentality is. Um, and it's kind of like, I, I really enjoy where our loggers are at and um, yeah. kind of uh, where I started. Haven't done too much trial and error with the water on the loggers just because I've been happy with where it started. Well, you're in a, a, a logger state, a state yeah. that, uh, <laughs> that makes a whole lot of them. Definitely. Um, you know, and I, I guess if you're trying to carve out a niche that's different with those lagers, you might as well make something that doesn't taste like, uh, you know, the standard lagers that, yeah. that everyone else is making around here. Definitely. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit. It's, uh, you know, obviously you mentioned, you know, large folks of the breweries on you know, hazy, you know, New England style uh, IPAs. Definitely. Um, and that, you know, you've obviously definitely built a, a, an audience for that here, um, you know, kind of carved out a niche with it. Uh, how, as a small brewery, you know, have, have you gone about, uh, uh, you know, creating new ideas for uh, these hazy IPAs? I mean, that's, I think, you know, that kind of persistent challenge in the world of brewing 
to do something new and interesting. You know, consumers always want to try something new. They always want a new story there. Um, seems like breweries are making tons and tons of different beers, but a lot of them have the same hops <laughs> in them over Definitely. and over again. You know, so how, uh, you know, from your creative process, how does that look when you're, uh, you know, you start thinking about making a new beer, um, you know, envisioning it and then going through that process of, sure. of creating it? Um, yeah, so that's, um, it kind of develops over multiple beers that we brew. So, um, we do a single hop series, which actually is, um, I guess selfishly a little helpful for me, but it's also something I like to try and, uh, have be there for our customers that come in that are interested. What does this hop specifically taste like? Um, so whenever we're doing IPA developments with blends of hops, I kind of run back through that catalog of the single hop beers that we've done. What characters did those hops bring to the table? Where do I think they would match well with other hops? That kind of gives me a catalog of what these different hop flavors. So if I'm doing a blend, that's how I'm going to kind of perceive what I think's the best hop combo. Um, it also tells me what hops do customers are not as keen on yeah. um, because maybe they're a little more aggressive uh, and like resinous quality. Um, so it gives me an idea of the ratio of that hop should be less um, okay. if I'm blending it. But I think. How's that feedback? Are you talking to the customers? Are you reading your untapped reviews? Both. Um, <laughs> okay. So okay. like um, untapped, it's a love-hate I thing. Love, I so. love that you'll admit to it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, like I'm not anywhere near as obsessive as I used to be, but right, um, right. untapped like very much a love-hate situation. So um, it, it definitely gives sure. me an area to make sure we're, we don't have an issue with, yeah. with a package can or anything that we're sending out there. So it has that, and it also has all the riffraff that comes with it. So, sure, sure. Um, but you, you're able to then track and see, especially if you're taking, uh, you know, trying something new or using a different hop and, uh, you know, seeing how uh, the customers review that rate, you know, relative to some of your other similar beers? Uh, definitely, definitely so. So um, there there's few hops that people seem to they like them by themselves but they're much better blend hops so like eldorado is one i would consider that and i i love a single eldorado beer it's one of my favorite beers we've made but it just wasn't a quick mover for us um (laughs) and it it rightfully so because eldorado is a pretty distinct hop you get um, some interesting flavors out of it um so, like, just the feedback from that, yeah. um, like, we use Eldorado in quite a few of our beers, and uh, it's generally at a lower portion um, okay. than a higher, and uh, I think it adds a nice uh, degree of complexity. What kind of percentages uh, do you, you like to use it in? Um, so, like, Cloud City, <clears throat> that's a beer we even split all four of the hops that are in it, so it's at okay. a 25% rate of the dry hop. Okay. Um, and then... Let me think. Uh, join us in creating excellence. Uh, it's a little higher, so it's okay. um, probably about 40 to 45% uh, okay. of the hot bill, so it's a little more aggressive in it. But uh, Join us in creating yeah. excellence, Which so is juice, a, right? Juice, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Which is, I see what you uh, did there. Requiem for a Dream uh, reference. Okay. Uh, so one of my favorite movies, and I was watching it one night. The infomercial popped on, and... I'm like, oh, yeah. It's like, that's a great beer name. Look it up on Untappd. Nobody has it. I'm like, yep, taking that one. <laughs> Inspiration comes from uh, from all sides. For sure. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about how you use hops. Uh, uh, but first, uh, balancing barley and hops is your expertise. 
and for Clarion Lubricants, food-grade lubricants is theirs. The team at Clarion knows that when it comes to making great beer, you are the expert, and when it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants, backed by service-oriented professionals, they're the experts. Clarion will work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your brewery. To speak with an expert, dial 1-855-MY-CLARION, that's 855-692-5274, or visit clarionlubricants.com. Clarion Lubricants, the expert that experts trust. Also, this episode is brought to you by BrewGuru, the free mobile app that alerts you to local discounts on beer, food, and homebrewing supplies. Created by the American Homebrewers Association, BrewGuru is your essential guide to brewing and drinking great beer. Start a 30-day free trial, no credit card info required, when you download BrewGuru for iPhone or Android. All right, so let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, some of the hops you use and how you're using them and the time you're using them. But uh, before we do that, we should probably uh, maybe open a beer and try Definitely. some. <laughs> yeah, um, let's uh, go ahead and drink some Double Drop Cloud City. Nothing like drinking some beer at 10-something yeah. in the morning after a, a beer festival. But, you uh, got to do it at some, some point. <laughs> We're professionals. Yeah, so this one uh, <clears throat> kind of talked about it a minute ago about the yeah. Eldorado uh, being it's double about a double dry hopped Cloud City. Yes. Okay. Um, so it's Citra Mosaic Galaxy Eldorado. So some of the easy button hops is the, what I like to call them. The easy button yeah, hops. Yeah, like so Citra Mosaic Galaxy. Right. I always call easy button hops. Okay. Like, as long as you got a uh, a decent IPA base, um, it, it'd be pretty hard to make a not decent uh, beer with those hops. Okay. Um, but still, some people manage to. <laughs> For sure. Um, you know, I guess the bigger problem, though, is, uh, you know, how do you how do you get uh, new flavors or branch out from those? You know, like uh, you can't make the same Citra Mosaic For sure. beer over and over and over again. Same Citra Galaxy beer, although not, I think some brewers do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, um, we're going to use these hops and we'll just put it in a different order on our label. Uh, you know, <laughs> right. Like, uh, we're going to use yeah. 5% of this and it's going to yeah. be a totally different beer. You know, I mean, again, there's nothing wrong with that. No. Like, those can, yeah. uh, you know, create interesting and new things, even in small amounts. Um, you know, but uh, again, consumers, you know, who legitimately want to try new things are, are also looking for that experience. Definitely. And it becomes... Uh, you know, harder and harder to kind of, you know, craft, uh, you know, those kinds of different experiences for them. For sure. Um, you know, how, you know, what are some of the directions that you go in order to, to kind of do that? Um, so I kind of watch uh, around the market, um, kind of like keep uh, keen on some of the new hops jumping up. So um, yeah. we, we do some ordering. Um, we order from a bunch of different hop um, suppliers. Um, so like when the experimental hop data has come out and it's... Right. This hop is going to have this kind of type of character. Those are always intriguing, but it's also not always easy to just try and use one of those hops and uh, have no real experience with it and hope right. things turn out well. Um, but we have done that. There's from, always a delta to some degree between uh, you know what they say a hop is going to taste like or provide uh, and what it actually does. Um, how do you how do you test that? And uh, you know you just go at, go at it and make a batch or um, typically so. Uh, I generally let the market at other breweries kind of tell me um, okay. how things are perceived. So uh, if it's an experimental hop I'm interested in, I try and see if there's anyone else out there yeah. that has made something with it and kind of what the general overall perception of that hop was, uh, which isn't always available. If a hop sounds interesting enough, I'll just say, screw it. Uh, let's, let's brew a six-barrel batch. Um, worst case scenario, we got to dump it. Right, um, right, which is never fun, but uh, 
We did a real interesting trial with a experimental hop from Hopsteiner, and it was um, like the descriptors were cocoa, caramel, and tropical fruit. <laughs> so it's super weird sounding, and I'm like, I want to try it. We'll see how it is. And uh, like when it was finished, the nose on it almost smelled like there was a little bit of like our porter left in a glass. Oh, wow. Um, and then the IPA got filled on top of it. So huh. it, it definitely brought a different dynamic to the beer. Would it be great in IPAs? Probably not. Yeah. Um, like, I don't think it made a bad beer by any means, but uh, it was kind of a fun trial. But what, what hop was that? Um, so it was Experimental 06300. Okay. Um, <clears throat> So that's really the only time we've done an experimental single hop. Okay. Um, and it was because I wanted to see what, what that brought to the table. Um, but some of the other hops that we've brought in that uh, have shown, like, very good market data was, like, Sabro. Right. Uh, Strata. Uh, Enigma, which would have been, like, a few years ago when we first brought that in. Uh, but those are all hops that seem to be gaining some traction. And right. all... Uh, out of those hops, like Strata was definitely a standout for me. I really, really enjoyed okay. the single hop Strata beer we did. So, what does uh, what does Strata uh, bring to a beer? What um, how, do you, how do you describe that from a sensory perspective? Yeah, so the the way it was perceived in our beers, um, I got a lot of like dankness out of it, okay. um, and some nice like pineapple notes. Um, so it. So it's it almost Simcoe, huh? Yeah, to an extent, it reminded me a bit of uh, like mosaic. Okay. Um, but it definitely had a different element to it. Okay. Uh, I think it was a little more dank than uh, what mosaic is. Okay. But, um, those are generally like mosaics, probably my favorite hop um, to work with and yeah. to consume. Um, and it's kind of along that same line, and I think that's why I enjoyed it so much. And it okay. was also a hop that was uh, definitely. Uh, our customer base really enjoyed it, so um, it was one of our more popular single hop beers. Um, yeah, uh, so it was cool to see um, a, a hop like that being able to be in the same category in a single hop beer as like a Citra single hop or Mosaic, right, uh, or Galaxy single hop type beers. Have you gone back the other direction at all? And uh, and uh, you know, I've, I've always found it interesting, to, or I have recently found it interesting to see uh, brewers using uh, noble hops and uh, you know another kind of classic style yeah. hops uh, in some smaller amounts in their hazy ipas that's something we always joke about um like i'll dry hop a fermenter and say i accidentally did fuggles what was i doing uh like just messing around because we all like have our love for fuggles in certain beers but sure, sure. they're not that great smelling <laughs> um so it's something i've toyed more with the idea right. about um i've seen some i think publications out there that they're showing like the um oil contents or the different oil contents can actually be beneficial right. mixed with some of the biotransformation uh, that goes on in yeast as well as some of the other hops, but uh, it's something I've not spent a ton of time researching yet. Okay. Um, but we have used some hops that have been more on the noble side before use. So yeah. um, trying to remember, I think it was Grunge Yeast hop um, from Hopheads Farms. Um, Opening that bag and smelling it, uh, it was a beer we did for a festival specific. Um, so it was open the bag, smell it, and I'm like, I don't know about this. Um, just because the, the aroma was like very noble 
esque yeah. of a hop. But um, it was like we're already committed to do the beer. We might as well just do it. And the finished product, I would have never believed anyone that that was the same hop that went in it. Really? Um, yeah. But I know it was. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was. What happened through that fermentation process that uh, that changed um, it? I don't know. I, I guess um, just the biotransformation process with the yeast. Yeah. Like it, um, it had a very noble character smell pre, pre going into the beer. And then afterwards, it was very much like all the, the pinpoints that you want. So tropical fruit, yeah. and, uh, everything out of it, as opposed to the huh. more the earthy, noble type characters you would expect after smelling it. Sure, sure. Talk to me a little bit about uh, you know how what you've settled on for uh, you know a hops edition process. Sure. I mean, imagine there's not much or if any going into on on the hot side up until you know whirlpooling. Yeah. But uh, tell tell me talk to me about your uh, your edition process. Sure. Um, so generally kettle for our IPAs, we're not doing anything but whirlpool, um, and a lot of the times uh, we've done, we've done a lot of trials with this. Um, so. Uh, some of our beers are very much a blend of uh, hops in the Whirlpool. Some of them are single. Um, so like a beer like DDH OJ Run, that's a single hop in the Whirlpool, which is Apollo. Okay. So it's um, not really a, a hop you would expect yeah. for that. But um, we've done trials of all Apollo in the Whirlpool, all Galaxy in the Whirlpool, and uh, the perception on the beers prior to dry hop are very similar. Interesting. Uh, it's not the same. Okay. Uh, we've had times where, for instance, one one of the times we tried it, I think we did half Apollo, half Galaxy, and then the other one was all Apollo, like normal. And the Galaxy one had like this awesome peach flavor. Okay. For this one time, I'm like, sweet, maybe we're onto something different here. Add a new aspect to this beer. Did the trial again, and it was not there. Huh. So I don't know if it was the lot of Galaxy we had or or what was going on there. Um, we've done kind of the same trials. So at that point, really, your Whirlpool is is producing a softer bitterness, yep. but it's really not having an aromatic uh, you know no. contribution then to the beer. Not much, and uh, like we don't chill down our Whirlpool, so we're okay. we're thrown in right at knockout, so that yeah. might contribute some of it. Okay. Um, we don't really have the best setup to to be able to to drop our temp. Right, um, right. we could do it, but how uh, long do you Whirlpool for? Um, we're generally Whirlpooling five minutes, and then we let set um, roughly about twenty minutes. So we okay. do a fifteen minute heat sanitize uh, through our heat exchanger. So. The time it takes to get to 170 or above, um, and then 15 minutes. So it's generally yeah. probably 17 to 20 minute okay. uh, rest, and then uh, we we knock out our six barrel batch pretty quick. So um, we're like 25 to 30 minutes um, from right. the kettle to the fermenter. Okay. So it's not sitting in there for too sure. terribly long, but it definitely um, adds a bitterness to the beer that. Right. I think needs to be there, um, and it's, um, I guess at first we were putting in like a 60-minute, like the first batch of yeah. Fallen Flag, we, we did like a half-pound edition, which uh, looking back on it is kind of funny to think about. Um, pulling all that out, and it was more just over time uh, seeing customers mention things like, oh, it's a little bitter than, than some of the other ones, so right. it's something we kind of pulled out over time. Yeah. 
um, you know, I guess that's, you know, given the differing sizes of brew houses, you know, uh, that's always an interesting challenge for a home brewer, you know, on uh, a hop stand or whirlpooling, like, you know, it's such a small volume of liquid that uh, can lose heat so much faster sure. than, uh, you know, and even you with a six barrel yeah. you know, system are uh, much smaller than, you know, say something like Great Notion brewing on a 30 barrel yeah. system. And, uh, you know, and again, the, uh, you know, they're in order to guess, get any kind of, you know, whirlpool effect, they are having to drop temperature a little bit. Um, you know, otherwise that, that volume of liquid is just going to hold on to all of that heat. Um, and all of those have different, you know, I guess, you know, certainly could have different effects on, uh, you know, how those ops perform in that environment. Um, how, uh, you know, in terms of the quality of bitterness, uh, you know, re- you, you obviously could do it either way, put it in the front, put it, you know, put it the, at the rear if it's just there to, you know, kind of sure. produce bitterness. Um, but what, um, you know, from your, you know, tests uh, has adding that bitterness through the whirlpooling process done? What, you know, is there a tangible quality that's different to that bitterness? Yeah, and I think um, you're getting a much different perception of the bitterness. I don't think it's as... Um I guess harsh on the palate. Like, I don't know if harsh is a good word, but it's it's softer on the palate, kind of right. like what you said earlier. And it does add like a general hoppiness flavor to an extent to the beer. Okay. Um, and it's something that's there, but it's uh, also something that doesn't vary too much depending on what the hops are there from the trials that we've done. Right. Um, so that's kind of why we've consciously moved uh, more towards the direction of using a... Uh, easier, cheaper hop in the whirlpool, yeah. and saving the expensive hops for the the dry hops. <laughs> sure, so, sure. Um, especially this day and age when hops are getting harder and harder to to source. Um, at right. times it's easy, times it's not. So anyway, we can uh, figure Galaxy out. Galaxy is expensive, yep. uh, and if it's just going to yep. be a kind of a semi bittering hop with no uh, you know no aromatic uh, contribution, yep. like why yeah why spend. Uh, that many dollars per pound on, exactly. uh, on that hop. No, that makes uh, sense. Talk to me then, uh, like moving from the the hot side, uh, you know, to the cold side. Um, yep. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, 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 you know, if you're willing to share what sure. kind of yeast you use, and uh, you know, and uh, then that kind of dry hopping process, yep. uh, timing, and uh, and how you're adding these hops in in order to to achieve the effect you're looking for. Yeah, definitely. Um, so. Um, we're kind of different on our yeast selection, um, compared to, I've had tons of conversations with people in the industry making, um, the hazy IPAs and I've yet to find anyone using the same strain we do. Really? Um, and we use, uh, Omega yeast, um, and we use the British Ale 4. Okay. Uh, which, uh, I believe derived from, uh, the Y yeast, uh, Thames Valley, uh, strain. And that basically came from my home brewing days. Huh. So... It's a strain I kind of fell in love with, with multiple beers. So it okay. worked out great in IPAs, works out great in porters, works out great in stouts. Huh. Um, it's a very nice yeast to make a pretty big range of beers Okay. Uh, in it. So we've done trials of yeast here, too, since uh, we have two 12-barrel brights. We can do um, – so we've done, like, London Ale 3, which is what most people are using, right, right. Uh, and then our strain – uh, side by side, try and blind, um, and I have two brewers that work with me, and obviously one had to pull it, so it wasn't blind to them. But right. um, I tried it blind, and one of my brewers tried it blind, and we both preferred our strain over the London Ale Three. Huh. That can be because that's what we're used to. Sure, um, sure. But uh, that's 
Something we try and like get trials in there to see if we can make our beers better. When you um, say you liked it better, what was it about it that you liked better? Um, I thought the the hops were much more present in ours okay. as opposed to the London Ale Three. They were both good beers. Um, yeah, yeah. But the the overall perception of the hop and the aroma and flavor right. was much more present uh, than the London Ale Three. I would say the London Ale Three was a bit softer okay. of a beer. Um, the way I perceived it, which could have been. Uh, the attenuation's a little lower on uh, the London Ale 3, so I think it was a touch sweeter than okay. the other, which might have uh, been the reasoning on both ends of why the hops were perceived a little different. Yeah. But uh, overall, the beers were pretty similar. Right. Um, and ultimately, we blended those into a, a batch together and uh. packaged it, <clears throat> which is always uh, a little worrisome because we, as a brewery, want to be as consistent as possible, but right. we still want to push ourselves to make our beers better. Um, there's some beers we don't ever touch anymore, right. so like double dry up, fallen flags, a beer. Um, we don't do a ton of like random tests like that on, um, especially like a yeast change. Right. Uh, we might do a malt change uh, just to kind of source a new potential malt. Right. Um, just because it is getting tougher at times to get some of the malt we, we huh. prefer, which is interesting. Okay. Uh, which is just kind of, uh, I guess, shows where the market's at. Uh, people are are putting more money into malts uh, in, in all their beers, which is right. nice to see, but it's also not always necessary. So, um, like, we use a lot of English malts, uh, whether it's Simpsons or uh, Thomas Fawcett. Yeah. Um, malts is typically what we go with. Okay. Um, so like Why? Um, so that was, I mean, there again, you're spending, you're spending money on these, uh, sure. you know, what kind of, uh, you know, with that and then that's, you yeah, know, yeah. baseball, um, what does, uh, what did those kinds of, uh, you know, kind of English, uh, uh, base malts produce for these beers that, uh, you don't get out of, uh, you know, say some standard two row. Sure. So, um, you get more of like a nutty type flavor is what okay. I perceive out of um, using some of the, like the Golden Promise or Pearl malt. Um, we get like a nice nutty aspect that I think just builds a complexity into the beer that's yeah. not necessarily there with with a, a very, I guess, I'm trying to think best way to explain, but like uh, some of the two rows, very basic, okay. um, where it doesn't bring a ton of grain flavor in. Right. Um, so... We've done trial side by side with multiple two rows and our English malts that we generally prefer. Right. Uh, and we've had times where we've made beers that we liked better huh. that were on two row. Yeah. Um, but it was definitely a, a little bit different of a beer. So um, it's kind of hard to like just shift that uh, right. beer over to that. Uh, but it's something we always keep in mind with a new beer. Um, so if... We want to try this malt in this brand new IPA we're doing, see how the perception is, and maybe right. it's a bit similar to another beer we make. We can kind of get an idea if our customers perceive that malt the same as we did down here, or that okay. we thought it was better, um, which doesn't always transpire that way, but right. it also is subjective because it's a different beer. So um, it's always hard to like weigh some of those things in, but... Um, we do a lot of trials, uh, just to, <laughs> for our learning 
right i'm kind of sensing that yeah, yeah. theme here and uh you know i think i guess that's one benefit of having a rather small brew house is that uh, you're brewing a whole lot um and that you can kind of uh you know, ch- you know test these variables for yourself as you kind of move through that very much um, so. yeah let's uh like cut off track talking about malt yeah, there, which sure. is great but uh <laughs> let's uh, uh let's go back and back talk, to the yeast talk and about the that kind of, yeah that fermentation and that and that cold side process sure um so uh, we, we do harvest our yeast, so, uh, we don't do any super crazy early dry hopping. Right. Uh, I know some people are throwing hops in like right at knockout up to like two days in, but we're, we're generally doing our first edition or our only edition, depending if it's a regular dry hop or a double dry hop at day six or seven. Okay. Um, so as soon as we can pull enough yeast for another batch is basically when we'll dry hop. Okay. Uh, which falls in that six to seven day range for us. Um, and if we're doing a double dry hop, uh, we're, we're generally 24 to 48 hours apart. Okay. Uh, depending on our schedule and where we're at. Um, but we try and so your double dry hop is actually two dry hops then. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. We do two dry hops. It's a very Um, flexible definition of double dry hop these days. Yeah. And that was like when I, the first time we double dry hopped a beer, we were probably already open over a year. Okay. Um, so it was like. And the reason I did it was I started to get like hop fatigue personally. Okay. So I'm like, none of our beers smell or taste like anything to me anymore, um, which is a hard thing to overcome, especially right. when you're supposed to be making new beers. Um, so that was when I decided I wanted to do a double dry hop beer and see how that goes. And um, little did I know that I was going to turn like everything into needing to be double dry hopped. <laughs> um, so like we went from, so it's not just, you know, to, to make consumers happy with yeah, some yeah. Uh, different acronym on it. It really is, uh, you yeah. know, even for yourself because, uh, you know, you just grew, uh, too yeah, comfortable yeah. and, uh, immune to the, the hops charms like that. And I think that's something we'll probably see more and more as these, uh, hop saturated IPAs are out there and, right. um, it's super easy to get overwhelmed by that. And, want more but realistically more probably can never exist right because uh, like we smell hops down here in the the raw form so it's never going to get more pungent than that right uh so it's it's a matter and i think that's why i like new hops so much as well because um, i perceive them a lot better because it's something i'm not as familiar with right but there are some new hops that are like uh oh, this doesn't really taste like much to me um, and I think it's just got some of the similar qualities as some of the, like Citra. I have a really, really right. hard time perceiving for some reason. Okay. Um, it's, it's one of the difficult hops for me to actually like, perceive its aroma okay. and flavor. Going hops blind. Yeah, it sucks. Like, yeah, it's not fun. But uh, I kind of got my tricks to uh, pretty much make it um, where I can have a sip or two or smell and, and perceive it and... Um, one of that's like a dark beer. So, uh, like our Porter we have on, it's very good to like drink a little like taster of it Uh and then go to a hoppy beer. Um, to me, it's like the best hoppy beer uh, is the beer after that. Um, so I'll do that. Almost has like a little coffee kind of palate. Exactly. So that, that works for me. It may not work for other people, but, um, like drinking non IPAs in between definitely yeah, helps, but yeah. the darker ones seem to be more beneficial to me. Yeah. So you talked about biotransformation, but then you're also mentioning that uh, you know you're harvesting yeast yep. before you uh, you know dry hop. Are you do you 
see what we would typically call biotransformation happening when uh, you know you're not dry hopping you know until so late in the process. Um, so I mean, I we know, believe like, even by six to seven days, like you know, is there still fermentation occurring? I mean, it's still yeast activity. Yeah, essentially, when we're dry hopping, the krausen's falling. So um, there's generally like a small layer of foam. Yeah. still on the beer or you can tell it just fell um so there's definitely some active yeast uh in suspension and we do still see um the beer lower okay and uh, and gravity after we dry hop as well okay uh, and how uh, how long do you leave those dry hops in um so for our single dry hop we're five days so um, as soon as we put them in, we, we bung off our fermenter. So we, we capture a lot of natural carbonation as well. Sure. Um, so when we're pushing from our fermenter into our brights, it's generally uh, like 1.8 volumes of carbonation. So oh, wow. okay. uh, we actually retain quite a bit, which I also think helps uh, keep some of that hop aroma uh, in, in the beer as well because you're not blowing it all out your tank. Uh, how does that, uh, you know, uh, affect, uh, something like hops creep? Um, do you see any of that, uh, additional fermentation, um, uh, you know, uh, happening and, uh, how do, what do you do to control it? Yeah. I mean, um, it's kind of, uh, something, uh, that's part of our process. So we know it's going to be there. Um, and we kind of run our, our brew house to compensate for it. So we want it to finish at a certain, uh, gravity. So, uh, we've learned over time where we need to mash in order to finish right where we want to be. Okay. Um, and it doesn't really seem to change, um, with that. So it's, I think very much kind of just a part of the process that we've learned to adjust sure. for. Interesting. Um, uh, is there a specific way that you're actually adding to the tank? You just popping them open and, uh, you know, dropping hops in or, uh, uh pretty much. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> our six barrel, fermenters have six inch dry hop ports and that's yeah. something i'm like i need big ports to dump in I, if i could have a manway on them i would much rather prefer that but um uh we actually got some of these square buckets um that had fruit puree in it that okay. have worked out like really awesome for dry hopping so uh we basically measure them out in the the buckets and the corner gives us a nice trajectory straight into the fermenter sure. without dumping hops all right. over the top and floor like trying to get them all in so um basically we're just dumping straight in uh which was a little bit of a, a learning challenge okay. uh i took quite a few beer baths um, <laughs> in the process of figuring right. out how to not create a beer volcano yeah um so <clears throat> happened a few times to me but uh luckily i can say right now i've not had that in probably two years so okay okay i'll probably get one next Don't week now that i said that but <laughs> Um, when, uh, you know, as a small brewery, one of the, the big challenges, uh, you know, the, again, brewing, uh, six barrel batches, um, yeah, is buying hops enough volume to be able to, you know, either select or, uh, yeah. you know, um, really be able to evaluate and get exactly the hops that you're looking for. Um, how, uh, you know, how do you evaluate these things, um, you know, uh, as they come in, uh, if you're buying small batches, uh, not necessarily on contract or, you know, I, I, I don't know if you contract or not. Um, you know, how do you, with these smaller batches of, of small hops, uh, kind of, uh, qualify them, you know, for your own use, make sure that they're meeting your, your expectation for, uh, for what that specific hop is. Um, you know, and then make the decisions about how to use them in the brew house. Yep. Um, so 
Uh, that's that can always be a challenge, uh, especially now. Like some of the hops that aren't contractable, you very much see that variation. Um, but we do contract a, a decent amount of hops. So like our Citra Mosaic, Eldorado, we actually contract Columbus, which is kind of insane oh, for wow. okay. uh, probably some people to think about. But um, the the Columbus uh, we're getting uh, through Willamette Valley is super awesome. Uh, yeah. So it's something I know is probably all gonna always be there, but I might as well just right. contract it because I know I'm gonna use it. Um, <clears throat> but whenever we're buying like hops for the first time, uh, opening them up, if something isn't quite right smelling, which hasn't right. happened very often, uh, we've had a few batches of things where I'm like, eh, this doesn't smell like I think it should. Right, right. Um, <clears throat> we'll generally not use those for dry hop, so it's like. Right. Won't use those for that. We'll put them aside if they work in a different style of beer or we're making a beer that we do want a decent amount of bitterness. We can use it for our bittering charge, um, things like that. But uh, one way I'll occasionally evaluate uh, hop is throw a couple pellets and um, a sample of one of the beers that we have fermenting uh, or at the end of fermentation before they're dry hopped and kind of see what what knows i might get out of it once it's a little bit in solution and yeah uh kind of get a feel from it there yeah uh should we try another beer yeah yeah for sure <laughs> we'll drink some hellas all right so we're going to switch gears now and uh and uh, uh get into talking a little bit about lagers uh you've got a, a hellas now yeah share. for sure whoa <laughs> so how do you build a character for these that uh, at the same time feel is classic but also you know feels like something you're brewing i mean you know they're uh Again, you're in a, a state that uh, you know of Missouri, sure. which is kind of known for uh, that that one lager brewery. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, um, and so you know, people here have expectations, but also have a deep familiarity with these uh, you know with these styles of beer, and uh, you know, of course, the other great lager producers like Urban Chestnut and, and stuff. You know, now on the on the craft side. Um, you know, how do you then, and, and for a brewery this size with, uh, you know, uh, some small fermenters and a small sure. brew house, like uh, uh, tank time is money. And for so, sure. uh, uh, you know, two and a half uh, months in a tank, uh, I mean, could uh, easily make that more expensive than some of your oh, IPAs yeah, sure. to produce. Um, you know, so, so again, why, why do it? And then how do you, you know, find a, a, a way to kind of make these beers, uh, you know, give them a character that feels like you? Sure. Um, While so, still being respectful to that kind of tradition and history. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I guess it kind of like touches back to what we talked about water profile. So, right. um, I would say like maybe that's what makes uh, the lagers we make unique to us <clears throat> is um, basically creating our own water profile, using it on all our lagers, and right. um, much like the reason people adjust water profiles now. So. Every water profile is adjusted typically to meet a classic right, right. water profile of where this beer was uh, developed. And sometimes we do that, um, try and hit um, as close as possible to what yeah. the, the water profile is. And um, sometimes we don't have that option. So okay. um, with the higher sulfates that we have, uh, I just try and do something to uh, help I guess flip flop that perception of, of the beer, so that's kind of our our throw or our spin into the lagers that we produce. Other than that, though, like I try and make them as close to uh, the historical um, values that I can find or literature that I've read. Um, 
So it's um, one of the things I, I'm extremely passionate about in the brewery is to make different styles of beer and show that we can make classic styles of beer. Right. Um, that we're not just coming in to make hazy IP, uh, IPAs and that's all we want to do because it's very much not what all we want to do. Is there a different audience for this beer than uh, your typical one? I mean, you are here again in the basement of uh, an Italian yeah. restaurant, uh, you know, kind of bar. And, uh, you know, you, uh, you were talking before you mentioned that, uh, you know, the kind of clientele there was, you know, dollar a beer kind of audience, uh, um, that, you know, and they've trained on, you know, now on these hazy IPAs that yep. you make, um, you know, uh, but uh, at the same time, like now you're going back and, uh, and brewing some lagers. Sure. Uh, there still has, you know, is there an audience there for that? Uh, definitely. So, um, <clears throat> so we've pretty much from the get go um, had a lot of IPAs. So that's not very right. appealing to a lot of people. And Kajina's being here for um, since 2004. So they're here 12 years before right. um, we started making beer here. So they had that built-in clientele that they, they groomed to the point of the brewery moving sure. in because they, they very much were a dollar, uh, dollar beer bar when they first took over <laughs> sure, and they sure. slowly converted to a craft beer bar. So yeah. um, before the brewery was here, they had 56 uh, craft beer taps. Right. Well, I guess not all craft beer. Some was uh, Budweiser and whatnot. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, they they kind of groomed their customer base a little bit to that extent, and they're right. also bringing in some new uh, faces and ha- uh, having all those beers. So uh, a beer like the lager definitely is more popular with the the original clientele that was coming in the sure, building sure um so we definitely see an increase in draft sales um so our loggers are one of the highest uh draft sales beers we make yeah um so like our draft to packaging is uh the draft is i shouldn't say much higher but it's probably like 60 percent of the batch 40 percent of its package so yeah. uh and most our beers are Probably 80% package, 20% draft, okay. um, like IPAs. Um, so that kind of tells you the cans move a little bit slower right. and the draft moves a little bit faster because we can still maintain uh, having a lager strain on hand. So uh, the Hellas we're drinking right now was the ninth generation of that yeast. Oh, wow. Um, so that in itself uh, takes a lot of cost out of it, too, because a, a lager pitch is not cheap. No. Um, so the the first time we did our Keller beer, we did one batch with it, um, and it was more of a trial. How fast is beer going to move? Can it allow us to have a lager strain on house? Right. Um, and it's very much moved quick, um, which was very exciting uh, because it allowed us to take this yeast strain to nine generations. Yeah. It's also allowed us to make a Hellas. Um, uh, an IPL we made as well. So yeah. um, it, it's fun to be able to dive into some different styles and have uh, another uh, yeast on hand to say, hey, let's brew a Vienna lager today. Yeah. Or, uh, what whatnot. does your lager process look like? I mean, for a small brewery, yep. again, you, you know, with a, a dual purpose, uh, you know, a system and process that was really built and designed for brewing ales. Yep. Um, that's been, you know, pushed into service to kind of, you know, make lagers. Uh, sure. you know, what does that look like for you? And, uh, you know, what, how, what does that process kind of proceed from, uh, you know, kind of ingredient ideas all Definitely. the way through, uh, through the brewing and then the lagering process? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> between the lagerings, they all have very similar um, fermentation profiles. So 
Um, we essentially knock our batch out to the low end of the yeast strain we use um, temperature-wise and okay. uh, slowly over the course of like six days let it climb to its high end. Um, so we, we hold it um, <clears throat> on the lower end for 48 or so hours and then okay. we let it rise over the course of 72 hours or so uh, up to the high end. Yeah. Uh, and then fermentation's pretty much done. Then we'll give it a couple days to climb up to mid sixties or so for sure. diacetyl rest, and, uh, and then we'll uh, slowly chill it down. So um, yeah. over the course of probably two days or so, we'll take it from that sixty-five down to thirty-four or so degrees um, in the fermenter, and then depending on what that beer is. Uh, will be how long it's in that fermenter. So our Keller beer, it may be chilled for two or three days before we push it to our bright. Uh, and when we push it to the bright, we let it sit there an additional two weeks Yeah. Uh, for the Keller beer. Um, so Keller beer is nice because it doesn't tie up fermentation time. We can work our schedule where it doesn't... Um, it takes the same amount of time, essentially, as like an IPA. Okay. Excuse me. So... Um, it kind of just works out really well with that beer and uh, a beer like the Hellas we we've transferred at the same time we would an IPA to a bright but we also leave it in that bright for like four weeks okay uh, instead of the two weeks so every time we do that um, we're tying up one of our brights which automatically means we're packaging twice a week instead of once a week <laughs> um, so it makes our, our right. uh, brew weeks a little bit longer, but that's beer we're all passionate for down here. And it, at least I don't think they care too much that uh, we're packaging twice a week. We generally make it work on uh, yeah. a brew day or a single turn day and doesn't really add too much time to our weeks. Right. Are you doing, uh, I mean, you mentioned that you uh, uh, bung the tanks when you're dry yeah. hopping. Do you do that with uh, with your loggers to carry some of that natural carbonation? Or, um, uh, a little bit, not yeah. as aggressive. It's something um, I want to try, but I'm also worried um, trapping some of the, the sulfur sure, aromas sure. and whatnot you get out of a, a lager fermentation in there. So uh, I've not been too aggressive uh, with, with trying to do that. Right, right. Um, is there another beer that, uh, yeah, that we can have a... Uh, for yeah. sure. We can drink a sour IPA. Ah, oh, let's um, do that. Yeah, which this one's uh, a current affair. So it was, uh, it's got lactose, chamomile, black currant, vanilla bean, um, which kind of spun off of a collab beer we did with Central Standard Brewing uh, out of Wichita. So uh, it was the first sour IPA we did was with them, and it actually was in that fooder over here. Um, and my, my plan was to do a, uh, fooder that we could, uh, do some quick turnaround, sour, uh, IPAs, Gozas, things like that. And, um, yeah. and after one time it spontaneously fermented the second time we filled it. So, <laughs> uh, I'm guessing we pulled enough of our house strain in it while we were pumping out, um, the, the first batch of sour IPA that we did. Okay. Wow. It's very dark. <laughs> Nobody can see this, but it's yeah. uh, you know almost uh, uh, a like deep burgundy red with a beautiful pink uh, foam head on it. Yeah, so it was um, a beer I wanted to bring back. Um, it's not one, and like I, I don't really like to bring back a collab beer. A collab beer is supposed to be a collab beer. Uh, this isn't exactly what that beer was. Like okay. the amount of chamomiles definitely went up. 
uh, and then the use of vanilla beans in it, and obviously it wasn't in the feeder uh, this time. So uh, it's the second time we've made uh, this beer. Um, the original beer I was talking about with Drop Ceiling was the name of it. Okay. And we still have people like get this beer, and they're like, Drop Ceiling was better. <laughs> um, which which is cool to like see the right. following that came um, from that collab we did with CSB. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about your sour IPA progress and uh, and process. I I, I find, and, I, and it's certainly a matter and subject to debate of talking about why these beers are called IPA or, or sure. sour IPA. Uh, you know, I I don't know if we need to get into that debate. Uh, uh, there's a great article in the the next issue of Craft Beer Brewing Magazine from Randy Mosher uh, talking about these beers, and he comes back to that point that you know all, all uh, styles are simply what people expect them to be, and so uh, you know at these at this day and age, IPA has simply come to mean has hops in it, you know, yeah, and yeah. so it's this shorthand for yeah, this has hops in it, and yeah. <laughs> uh, and you know certainly you can taste the hops in this beer, and they're mm. they're strong and they're uh, in the present, uh, even though it's very fruity and uh, and also has an acidic component to yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, tell me a little bit about um, how you think about building these beers and balancing all of those sure. competing flavors. Because with that acidity, you know, that sweetness, you know, that vanilla and that spice character, and the hot, I mean, that's a lot going on in a For beer sure. like this. Um, yeah, and these beers tend to be the ones that I pour out and I can drink a full glass in like twenty seconds because my <laughs> brain's like, I want to try everything in this beer, and my right. brain's constantly trying to find everything that's in it. So. Um, they're super fun beers or some of my favorite beers to actually write recipes for. Yeah. Um, because it's almost more culinary based. Right. Um, so with most everything, I try and mimic some sort of dessert, but not always. So like this one doesn't really have any um, like dessert by any means that uses those components. But um the use of like chamomile I've used in wits before and I've always liked the character that comes with it. Um, and it's one of those things where generally if I'm going to use a fruit, I'm going to look up what weird spices go well with it. Yeah. Um, what fruits pair well with it and things like that. Um, so in development of the beer, it's very much revolves around what the additions are going to be. Um, so as soon as I make a decision on this is the fruit I'm going to use, that's when I'll determine all the rest. Um, so generally hop wise, I'm looking at hops that, um, are high in flavors associated with like lime per se. Right. Um, so like Motueka is one I've used a lot, um, in some of our sour IPAs. Uh, and it's just because lime's a good addition to a lot of fruits. Um, <clears throat> a good compliment, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, and I think that makes sense because people also associate acidity with lime, and yep. so uh, you know, by pulling that character out, you know, that it almost kind of makes the acidity make sense, you know, in, sure. in a flavor perspective. So let's talk a little bit about that, you know, acid process. Um, sure. You know, you mentioned the the first version of this, the collab uh, drop ceiling uh, was uh, fooder yep. kind of uh, uh, sour beer that uh, was a part of this, and uh, and this is a different process. Is this a kettle sour process? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. So um, <clears throat> my original plan was to our all our sour IPAs we were just going to call fooder IPAs, um, and obviously that didn't work out, but. Um, <laughs> We, we essentially do like a kettle sour process. Um, this single wall tank right here, um, which is a 12 barrel bright, I actually bought for blending wine barrels. 
uh, for our mixed fermentation program. Um, and it's ended up being much more useful than that. So okay. it was one of those purchases where I'm like, eh, I don't know if I really should spend this much money on right. what I'm going to get out of it. And now it's like, I don't know what the hell I would do if I didn't buy it. <laughs> um, so like we basically do a double batch. Um, we do all the boiling uh, at that time, push it into there. We use a lactobacillus blend. Um, and that uh, takes it down to a specific pH range we're looking for. Okay. Um, so once we hit there, we'll uh, send it back to the kettle and we actually run it through our heat cha- uh, heat exchanger um, with our hot liquor tank uh, flowing through it. So uh, we can heat up our 12 barrels of sour wort essentially into our mash tun and kettle in a little over an hour. And then... Uh, we're like 175 in our mash tun. We're one batches, and as we're filling our kettle, we can turn on our heating elements and get that up to 180 range, and that's the one of the only beers that we whirlpool cooler than like right at flame out. So uh, we whirlpool it with, um, depending on the hops, um, we try and shoot for like what we believe we would gain like 30 to 35 IBU okay. uh, out of the whirlpool. Uh, and then we treat it like a normal batch after that. So it, uh, goes into one of our fermenters and, uh, we ferment it with our house strain. And, um, that was a little worrisome the first time I'm like, I don't know how our strain's going to react in an acidic environment. Uh, but it does not care at all, which, uh, was a little surprising. Right. Um, and then we, we kind of treat it very much like our pale ales more than our IPAs. So, our dry hopping's uh, decently aggressive on it, but not over the top. Yeah. Um, and we, we generally fruit and dry hop at the same time. Okay. Um, so we've not uh, had uh, aseptic puree. Yeah. Or, okay. So anything we're putting in our cans, um, like we don't want to bring in real right. fruit into the scenario um, just because. Well, we don't want to have puree all is real fruit. Yeah, uh, it's raw just fruit. I raw should say, fruit. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is definitely real fruit. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Um, which was poor wording on my end. That's all right. That's all right. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, like an aseptic fruit, so we right, don't have to right. worry about infecting our canning line or anything right, like that, right. because ultimately that's not something we want to do. Right. Right. Now you know, there's there's uh, you know still with these um, you know you're pushing residual sugar you know into you know through that aseptic puree mm-hmm. into a beer that's uh, you know probably still has some yeast in it. Yep. Um, yeah. What does that refermentation process look like, and uh, how do you still uh, you know kind of maintain the you know because a, a little bit of sweetness to this really yep. kind of softens that fruit character. It's necessary, I think, to make, to make this beer work. Um, I mean, how do you maintain that kind of residual sweetness without, uh, you know, again, creating uh, cans that are going to explode? Sure. Um, so kind of our, our our viewpoint on doing that is lactose sugar. So um, it, it's kind of a different sweetness you're going to get, but it okay. helps uh, give you a little bit of perception of sweetness and also okay. the body. Um, so you're pushing lactose back into it uh, since it's not fermentable after it's the beer is fully attenuated and refermented. Um, so we introduce the lactose, and when we are pushing out of right. our single wall bright back to the kettle to okay. reheat for whirlpool. So we actually put it in during the whirlpool, um, which was a little worrisome. Uh, I was worried 
Um, since it's not getting boiled, are we really sterilizing it? But we've not yeah. had any issues with it. Okay. Um, it's something I continue to monitor. Or we continue to monitor. Um, so like every every time we package a four pack of any beer, we set them out warm to make sure we don't see cans explode, we don't see infections, uh, things like that. Uh, and we did have one instance uh, where we had a sour IPA referment in cans, um, and it was like day 14, we had a four-pack explode down here. So it was a little super worrisome when that happened. Um, it's not something I want our brewery associated with as exploding right. cans. Um, and like, person, a few people posted online, and people would be criticizing that person for not keeping it cold, and Right. Uh, that's something I'd always chime in on and be like, no, that's that's not why we have that on our packaging. It's on there to preserve flavor. Um, this is not their fault. This can exploded. It's absolutely mine. Um, so in that that instance, it was um, fruit came in late. OK, so our fruit was like eight days late, uh, which was super worrisome already as it was. But I didn't really have. Uh, a choice other than wait it out or dump it. Um, right. So we waited it out, got the fruit, put the fruit in. It fermented to an extent, but it was still very sweet compared to our other sour IPAs. Okay. Uh, and it sat there for a couple days, wasn't moving. And I'm like, well, I guess maybe that's where it's going to stop. And probably when we transferred over, we kicked up more yeast and yeah. got it back excited and made some problems for us so. yeah how'd you handle that um so basically <clears throat> it was if you had any issues with it let us know we'll, we'll gladly replace it with right. four packs of anything um <clears throat> so like we wanted people to come back in if they had issues with it right, like right. we want to replace these cans um it's on us not you right, right um so we we didn't see a ton of people, so I think most people kept them cold. Yeah, uh, which is great, but uh, it's still. I'm sure there's cans still out there waiting to explode at some point. Oh. Hopefully not, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> it's something where we're kind of just monitoring as we go. So if people yeah. bring it up to us, and if it's been in group, um, Facebook groups or anything like that, right, just kind of right. state, hey, if anyone else has issues please bring it up to us, bring in the four pack. Don't even bring it in. We don't care. We'll replace it. Yeah. Uh, type thing. I guess St. Louis is good for that. There's a, uh, there's some, an active, uh, you know, kind of yeah. social, uh, social group. And so, yeah, with, uh, I don't know, six or 7,000 members in it. And so it's a, you know, great communication source to, Definitely. to get that feedback and then push it's, that information back to them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's a positive thing for the most part and it can be negative. Um, so, um, I can't complain about the Facebook groups because they definitely streamlined uh, our reputation and right, uh, getting right. people to come out and visit us. So um, the, the day and age of the social media definitely is helpful to businesses, but it also can be harmful sure. at times. Um, luckily, it's been pretty good for us. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so what's next for Narrow Gauge? What's, um, uh, what's on the horizon for you? Yeah. So... Um, I guess our, our big horizon look is uh, we are looking at relocation and expansion. So, yeah. um, as you can see, we've filled this space out pretty much to yeah, what we can yeah. do uh, in it. So, um, we were looking at uh, getting closer to the city of St. Louis. So, okay. um, we have our eyes on a spot uh, we're looking pretty hard on now. Um, so, we're just waiting for to go through some of the legality um, yeah. issues that we got to 
overcome with it um, sure. with liquor licensing things like that so it being in a neighborhood's uh, a little more interesting so we got to get signatures to make sure right they're gonna allow us to to be in that building so uh, but we're pretty hopeful yeah uh, the the community as a whole seems very positive for us okay. moving in there's been some vocal uh, out speaks but um, you're gonna have that with any anything you're trying to do yeah uh, will the the basement uh, brewery uh, live on, or are you gonna uh, somehow move all this gear back <laughs> the, out? The plans to pull it all out. Uh, um, I don't even really like to think about it, but yeah, um, yeah. it's uh, it's too like I don't know. I love the six barrel batch size. Like it, it gives us a lot of creative freedom um, right, right. to to make a batch of beer and kind of see see how it uh, how we like it, how our customers like it. Um, and it, it it'll end up being a real nice pilot batch but we'll still probably run it the same way we run it today yeah um so brewing three double batches one week two double batches the follow week following week so um it'll continue to make uh probably a good amount of beer nice nice uh Jeff Hardesty, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks if, for having me. If people uh, want to learn more about uh, an gauge, where do they find you? Um, so we are on all the major social media platforms. So Narragage Beer is our handle on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, and then our website's uh, narrowgaugestl.com. Fantastic. Uh, uh, thanks for uh, joining me on the podcast. Thanks for sharing some beers with me. Uh, sure. We've tasted everything from Hellas to Sour yeah. IPA and uh, some uh, Double Dry Hopped IPA. we got some stout in here we can try, too. <laughs> <clears throat> we'll have to do another episode yeah. for that one. Um, you know, I want to thank this episode's uh, sponsors as well. Uh, uh, G&D Chillers sets the standard on quality, service, and dedication to their customers' craft. Download the free Tavor app today and get $10 in beer money with code BREWING. Brew Guru and Clarion Lubricants, the expert that experts trust. Uh, cool. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.